So let's define repentance together. I love this from Charles Spurgeon. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. I think that's a helpful definition of repentance. We discover the evil, we mourn over the evil, but then we have to resolve to forsake the evil, right? So there are these steps that he defines there in repentance. There's a few others that I'll give to you just for you to listen to in terms of definitions of repentance. I really like this one from J.I. Packer. I'll I'll read it out loud to you. J.I. Packer says, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. See, that allows um, for sanctification, doesn't it? It allows for growth. And so as we see more sin, as we see more of God, right? As we understand more of who we are, then our repentance grows with that. Now, here's a, more, here's a simpler definition from John Stott on repentance. To repent is to turn with resolution from all that is known to be contrary to God's will. I like that part with re- resolution. To turn with resolution from all that is known to be contrary to God's will, right? So all that you actually know, right? Um, not the things you, you don't know about, but the things you do know about that are against God's revealed will. Repentance, if we're going to define it, involves change in three aspects of a person. First of all, it involves intellectual change so that one sees self, sin, and God in a different light. Listen to this from Luke 15, verse 17. Right, the prodigal son, after he squanders the wealth that has been given to him by his father and goes and simply lives out his heart's desires. But then when he is gazing upon the pig food, this is what we read in verse 17 of Luke 15. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. That he came to himself aspect of the verse. There was a recognition and understanding in his mind. He saw his wrong. He understood it cognitively. And so there's an intellectual change that must take place if we're talking about repentance. But there's another aspect of change, and that is emotional. It involves emotional change so that one is actually sorrowful over the sin they've committed against God. And and every sin is first and foremost against God, isn't it? It's against his character, his holiness, it's offensive to him. And so think of Luke 18, 13, the Pharisee and the tax collector there in the temple. And we read this about the tax collector. 
who's standing far off, and he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's obviously, implicit in that, an emotional character to the repentance that is effective in this man. It's intellectual. It's emotional. It's also a change that involves the will. It's volitional. It involves a change of the will so that one chooses. There's an actual decision that is made to turn from a life of sin to then serve God. So thinking back to the prodigal son in Luke 15, 18, he makes a decision. He doesn't just recognize his wrong. He makes a decision. It says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He's making a plan, isn't he? He's making a plan to do something. I'm going to return to my father. And actually, here's what I'm going to say to him. He's making a decision and involves the will as well. What else? Well, repentance in coming to Christ for salvation has certain components. I want to talk about that first. We'll, we'll get into repentance that continues on in the Christian life, but let's first start talking about coming to Christ for salvation. You can turn your Bibles to these different texts here. I'll read them aloud, but you can turn. We need to see that, first of all, it's a commanded response. In Scripture, it's a commanded response. In Acts 3.19, Peter is preaching, and he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So it's something you must do. If someone's going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, they must repent. It's a decision they have to make. It's commanded. So that's one aspect of it. The, the, the thing that, as a preacher, I want to do is I want to... Yes, remember that God is in control. Yes, remember the sovereignty of God. But I'm also going to try to be very Spurgeon-esque. And I'm going to command people to repent from the pulpit. I'm going to urge them to turn from sin and turn to God. But at the same time, I'm going to be remembering that it's granted. Repentance is granted by God. It's commanded, but it's also granted. Acts 11, 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is for them too, this salvation. But God has granted it. He has given this repentance to them. They would not actually obey the command to repent if God had not granted them the ability to repent. God initiates, God works, God gives them that gift of repentance. But what about this? This is interesting. You can look with me at Mark 1.15 to get another aspect of repentance and coming to Christ for salvation. Jesus, what does he say here in Mark 1.15? We read, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now we might think to ourselves, whoa, 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 wait. I thought that we are good, reformed, believing Christians. Right? We believe in the solas of the Reformation, right? That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. 
in Christ alone. So if you're telling me that I need to repent and believe in order to be saved, well, doesn't that run contrary to faith alone as a doctrine that we hold dearly to? And the answer is, no, it doesn't run contrary because it accompanies faith. There are two sides of the same coin. And so you could think of it like this. Repentance always believes and belief always repents. Two sides of the same coin. And by the way, uh, you might think of it like this. I've heard this explained and I, and I, I think this is good in terms of a visual for me. So if, if this wall right here is uh, my, my old life, my life of living on my terms, this is my sin, and this represents Christ, then if I'm going to turn to Christ, I've got to turn away from life on my own terms. I've got to turn away from my sin. And so it's really kind of just one motion. The, the turning away from sin is repentance, but the turning to Christ is faith. And so it's one motion, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two sides, the same coin. And so when you hear these, when you see these commands, like in Acts chapter three, verse 19, it says repent, but you don't see, he doesn't mention in the same verse faith. You should, um, you should know that it's implicit there. It's not just repentance, it's repentance and faith. What about this? Turn to first Thessalonians one nine. What else is this repentance in coming to Christ for salvation? Paul, writing to this church, talks about a report that he's been given. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what repentance is. Turning from those things that we once worshipped and we bowed the knee to. Now we're going to turn to God. It's not just turning from what is wrong to what is right. Don't, don't simply think of repentance as that. Like, I'm going to turn from um, sin and unrighteousness to righteousness. No, it's actually from idols to God. We are turning to Him. Speaking of this repentance and coming to Christ for salvation, I want to give you a couple of illustrations. Okay, First of all, who's read the book by Rosaria Butterfield, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert? Read that? Anybody else read that book? Okay. There's a copy down in the bookstore I saw, and or you can buy it on Amazon. I highly recommend you read this book. It's a the story of a woman that was entrenched in the gay community in New York. She was a professor at Syracuse in the English department. And it's the story of her essentially coming to Christ and what that looked like. And the reason why I love the book so much is because it's such a clear picture of what repentance is when someone leaves their old life and comes to God through Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful depiction of repentance. She gets it because she was not just um, entrenched in a secular lifestyle. She was entrenched in a lifestyle of homosexuality. She had a partner. She was entrenched in homosexual um, activism. That was the life that she lived in. And she embraced all of her friends, all of her community. And the Lord saved her and brought her out of that. And it took this, it was this long journey 
right? There's this pastor and his wife are very patient and asked a lot of questions and, and brought the gospel to her over time. But then she did. She repented. And she actually ends up moving from her whole context to go and serve at this uh, other I think it was a, like a Christian school in a different location in the Northeast. But I want to read a paragraph to you from her book. It's the whole chapter on repentance. And this is what she says. She talks about her, her dog. She has a dog named Murphy. Okay. And so she's driving away from her life, leaving it all behind to go to this, I think like a Christian academy where she's going to, where she's going to teach and use her skills and abilities. And she says, I was driving away from the place, the life, the career, and the people that I knew and loved. But Jesus Christ was more real to me at that moment than any of these material things. Murphy, her dog, licked my face again, and I laughed out loud. This was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. I lost everything but the dog. My career, my friends, that whole life where I was entrenched in that sin. She left it behind to go and live for Jesus. And she says, I just had the dog left. But she's not sad about it. She's saying, I, I felt Jesus. I knew Jesus more in that moment than any of the other times. I, and and I, I saw him as more real than those material things that I was leaving behind. Now, Let's contrast that. that that's, that's turning from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay? But on another account, I don't know if you remember, because I, I, I was in the youth group in the late 1990s and, and I was in college in the early 2000s, there was a Christian music artist that was very big at the time and her name was Jennifer Knapp. You remember Jennifer Knapp, anybody? Okay. Well, she made three albums and she was huge in the Christian music industry, but then she kind of fell off the face of the planet for several years and came back in 2010 uh, openly embracing her homosexual lifestyle. And she was on Larry King to kind of announce this and talk about this. And there was a pastor on Larry King with her and he was asking her questions. You know, they were, he was trying to be very gentle and talking to her about homosexuality. He believed it was a sin, uh, but she was very vehement and volatile in that whole conversation and i i remember reading this blog article it's it's a blog article from trevin wax uh, he wrote about this the day after he watched this interview and um he was talking about the fact that jennifer knapp had got gotten the pastor to admit that he was a sinner right he said yes of course i'm a sinner well all of a sudden that becomes the uh, the focus of what she's saying like okay well then why are you giving me a hard time if you're a sinner and so Trevin Wax writes this because she, she was she was embracing this lifestyle and she was defending this lifestyle. And so uh, he, he writes this. He goes, the point is not that the pastor and Jennifer Knapp are both sinners. It's that the pastor agrees with God about his sin while Knapp remains in her sin without repentance. That is why he's questioning her Christianity for Christian teaching makes clear the necessity of repentance as the entryway into the Christian family. It's not, the, the point's not that, okay, you're both sinners. It's that, that one sinner is saying, I agree with God. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. I confess that and I turn from that by the grace of God to the life he's calling me into through Jesus Christ. But the other person who is also a sinner is not saying that. They're defending their sin instead. 
So that's a helpful contrast as we talk about repentance and coming to Christ for salvation. Let's talk now about repentance that continues. Repentance that continues after conversion and marks the life of a believer in Christ. Okay, so Matthew 5, 4. One of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And to understand that properly, we need to understand that it's not just people who are walking around sad all the time, but those who are mourning over sin. Mourning over, yes, the sin that's in the world, but mourning over their own sin. And this is, this is something that continues on. This is not like a one-time mourning, but those who belong to the kingdom of God, they are people who do mourn. They continue to mourn over their own sin. And at the same time, we look at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the way that I used to think about that verse was that that was a conversion verse. That was a, a salvation verse. Yes, we, we must come to Christ when we do for the first time, confessing our sins. And when we do, we can trust in him to cleanse us and to forgive us. But this is a present active verb in the Greek. If we confess our sins... It's to be something that characterizes us throughout our Christian lives. Are we going to continue to confess our sins to God, trusting that because he's faithful and he's just, then he's going to forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So it continues on in the Christian life. Now, let's talk for a while about attributes of repentance for the Christian. First of all, Repentance possesses godly grief or godly sorrow instead of worldly grief. And you can look with me there at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start looking in verse 8, kind of get the context there. We're talking about worldly grief versus godly grief. Okay, so I'll start reading in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So he's giving attributes of this, this godly grief. And I want to point you to a resource that helps explain these. I'm going to kind of hit on these briefly because we don't have time to get into the nitty gritty, but um, finally free by Heath Lambert. You may be familiar with that work. Great book. Now, it is on uh, fighting the sin of lust, but it could be applied to any sin problem. It's just a manual for dealing with sin biblically. And so I highly recommend it, but there's a, a chapter in there, fighting lust with sorrow, 
And he, he kind of unpacks the attributes of godly grief here in this chapter. And so I'll briefly go with, with you through some of these attributes. And then I, there's a couple more I added to his at the end of my list. So let's get started. First of all, worldly grief is real grief, but it's focused on self and all that cannot be possessed because of sin. It's thinking about self. Oh, I don't get to live this way or I don't get these benefits because I've sinned. These circumstances of mine have changed because I've sinned and now life is harder. It's focused on self. But godly grief is something different. Godly grief is focused on the reality that God has been offended by one's sin. God is the focus of godly grief, not self. And so if we're thinking about 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, which kind of walks through these different attributes of godly grief, we'll see that godly grief is earnest. It perseveres in the fight against sin. It doesn't give up and throw in the towel when it comes to fighting sin. It's something that continues. Godly grief also leads to an eagerness to clear oneself. It works hard to put off sin and put on righteousness. There's striving involved. Um, We are um, very focused on grace in evangelicalism, and rightly so because what the Bible says about grace, but that doesn't mean there's not striving. A striving against sin and striving to put on righteousness for the glory of God as we depend on God. And so there should be a striving, a a, uh, toil, if you will, in this. Godly grief leads to indignation. It, it hates sin and the displeasure it brought to God. We do believe that even as Christians, though we are righteous in God's eyes because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that imputed righteousness, but we still believe that, yes, God is displeased when we sin against him, when we go against his good will. And godly grief knows that and recognizes that. What else? Godly grief leads to a right fear. It experiences a holy reverence of knowing that God saw the sin and is displeased, but also gave forgiveness in Christ. There there is a fear because of both of those things. Knowing that God saw the sin, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees us through and through. But at the same time, you've got uh, great texts like Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, that talk about um, how if God were to write down our sins, right? right, to record them like in a legal ledger, no one could stand. But then in verse 4, it says, but with you, God, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. No one could stand before God whenever he records. If he were to record all of our sins, we couldn't stand in the court of law before God if he had all of our sins written down. But with you, God, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. You'd expect him to say, with you, there's holiness that you may be feared. With you, there's justice that you may be feared. But he says, with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. And so it's both the fact that God, he sees the sin, and yes, he's offended, but at the same time offers forgiveness in Christ to us. There's something sobering and revering about that. Godly grief leads to a longing to be restored to those who have been sinned against. 
doesn't run away from transactional forgiveness, right? But runs to the interaction with the other person. Runs to the person you've sinned against and seeks to restore that relationship. Make it right. Confess where you need to confess. Own sin where you need to own sin. Make restitution where you need to make restitution. Godly grief leads to a willingness to accept the consequences of your sin. Not getting put out and impatient that life is harder because of your sin, but saying, I deserve so much worse than this for my sin. I deserve hell because of my sin, but this is so small. It's temporal. I know in Christ I'm forgiven and I look forward to heaven And I'm so appreciative of that. I'm not going to get bent out of shape because I have a harder life because of what I have done. It's humble in that regard. We can also say this too. I'll add these two components to godly grief. Godly grief is sorrowful over heart sins as well as sins committed out in the open. Okay? So think of Galatians 5.17. This is what's going on at the, the level of the heart for us. I'll read 16 and 17, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, um, worldly grief, I think would be the kind of grief that says, yeah, I'm just going to own the sins that are on the outside that people saw. I want to make sure that I save face in front of these people, right? But godly grief says, no, I don't care if anybody else saw it or not, God saw it. And that, that's what matters because God is the one who is most important to me. He's my God. He's my savior. He's my father, right? So it grieves over heart sins as well as those committed out in the open because it's all sin against God in the first place. And Jesus had to pay for it all. But at the same time, there's hope in that this godly grief does not forget the grace of God in Christ. We see an example of some grief in Mark chapter 9, but also some hope at the same time from the same individual. Look at, look at me at Mark 9, starting in verse 22, and we'll see this. His father talking about his son who is possessed by an unclean spirit. And it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him, he says. But speaking to Jesus, but if you can do anything, Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's struck with a sense of, okay, yeah, I can see that I have unbelief in my heart. But at the same time, I'm going to cry out to you, Jesus, and say, help the fact that I'm unbelieving in that regard. And so in our grief, we don't forget that there's graciousness and we draw near to the Lord and ask him for help and know that we'll get it because of his love for us in Jesus. What else about repentance? Repentance confesses sin. You can look at Psalm 32, 1 through 5. Psalm 32, 1 through 5, a psalm of David. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin 
is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So repentance confesses first. It's not everything when it comes to repentance, but certainly it is an important component of repentance. And the Greek word, we talked about this already in, in, um, in 1 John 1, there's a Greek word for confession in the New Testament, and that, that word for confess in the New Testament means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. We are to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. So that means when we're talking about our sin, we're using biblical terminology, aren't we? We're calling it what it is. It's a lie. It's deceit. It's not a fib. It's not shading the truth, right? It's not an affair. It's an, it's adultery. Those kinds of things. Call it what it is. Whenever, whenever Nathan is confronting David, on his sin with Bathsheba, he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord in your sin? He says that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord with his sin against Bathsheba? And then he says in the next verse, in, in verse 10, um, you have despised God with it. Despised. Let's call sin what it is, right? In our confession of it. Let's not shade it. And that's what true confession is getting at. And by the way, I'm sorry, I was supposed to give you that already. I apologize. Confession is to be made without blame shifting as well. To be made without blame shifting. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has been commanded by God to wipe, wipe out the Amalekites. Thoroughly, completely. But he doesn't. He doesn't kill Agag. And the livestock, he keeps some of the livestock as well. But this is what he says. He says this to Samuel. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So he says, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. So it might seem like he's confessing. But then he says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There's kind of this, oh yeah, but they were telling me to do it, so that's why I did it. To kind of get some of the blame off of himself. Or we know well, Genesis 3.12, Adam, who said to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's like a double layered blame shift, right? The woman you gave me, God. Blaming God for giving him Eve. But confession has to be made without blame shifting. Like, own your part. I sinned. I, I, I can't shove that off on anyone else. It was my responsibility. What else about confession? Confession should be made to God, first and foremost, as well as other parties who are affected. There is a vertical, and a horizontal confession of sin. 
vertical to God, horizontal to those who we affected with our sin. So Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's amazing. You're in the middle of worship. And Jesus is saying, it's more important for you to go make reconciliation. The person that you've sinned against, you need to go make it right. Right? Go confess. Go make sure that transaction of forgiveness takes place. And then you can come back and then you'll be freed up to worship. There's some urgency and prioritization in, in our confession and our restoration with other people we've sinned against in that text. What else, what other attributes of repentance do we see in Scripture? Repentance not only confesses sin, it forsakes sin. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in the Scriptures talking about repentance. It's Proverbs 28, 13. Proverbs 28, 13. No matter how sorrowful and sincere it may be, confession alone does not equal repentance. We see it in verses like this. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Both. In in one verse, you've got both. Yes, you need to confess. Don't stay silent. Don't conceal your transgression. But you've got to confess and you've got to forsake. You've got to leave your sins behind. That's repentance. The person who obtains mercy is characterized by confession and forsaking the sin that he's guilty of. I love that because it it says what repentance is, but also gives hope, right? Confession and forsaking, that's what we must do in order to repent. But there's also the promise of mercy, too. I love that scripture does that. Gives commands, but then gives hope and reasons for obeying those commands. What else? Repentance does not leave the door open to run back to sin after the guilty feelings subside. Because a lot of times we do. We we feel the real grief, the real sorrow of worldly sorrow, don't we? It it can be deep. It can be gut-wrenching. But godly sorrow doesn't leave that door cracked open to actually go back as soon as you feel better about it and engage in that sin again. I love Romans thirteen fourteen, the put off and the put on here, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Put on what he has done for you, his promises for you, right? What he's calling you to as a Christian, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I wish I remember the name of uh, a blog post that was on Desiring God recently from Joe Rigney on this verse. Go look it up. Uh, it's, it's about temptation. Joe Rigney, Desiring God. But he talks about Romans thirteen fourteen and talks about the fact that making provision for sin, like you're, you are um, helping yourself to sin in some ways. Maybe you don't go and run into sin, but what are the things in your life that you choose that are kind of setting you up for sin? right? Or the, the step before sin, right? The pre-sin um, foolishness or the pre-sin lack of wisdom. 
And you're just saying, I'm okay, yeah, I'll have this available. You know, th- this, this is an access point to sin, or this is a, a place in my life where I really haven't guarded myself. And so we end up um, providing for sin in that way, making provision for the flesh here. It's like you're feeding the dragon of your flesh. And each time you give in to sin, instead of put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like the, the dragon gets bigger, hungrier. We tend to think that when we give in to temptation, okay, the, the onslaught of the, the temptation will be subsided, right? It'll go away. It'll be, it'll be lessened by degree. If we can just give in to it for a moment, I can stop feeling all of this intense pressure of the temptation. But when we do that, it just comes back stronger the next time, doesn't it? So don't make provision for the flesh, but rather you got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he for you? What has he done for you? What's he promised through his life and death and resurrection? And this forsaking of sin also is very gospel-centered. It's motivated by the gospel. And I'll show you because you have here um, a call to repent or to flee from sin in 1 Corinthians 6. But it's dependent upon, or it's because of gospel reality. Here's the command in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That's one gospel reality, right? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's a gospel reality. So it's a motivation for us to flee sexual immorality because of that. But then uh, here's another one. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Not only are, do you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, but you've been bought. You've been purchased at the highest price. The blood of Jesus. You're not your own now. You belong to him now. Therefore, glorify him. Glorify God in your body. It's focused on the gospel. Also, when we forsake sin, we are not just returning to righteousness. We are returning to God. That's very important. Again, we're not just turning from unrighteousness to righteousness. Like it's just this horizontal thing. I'm no longer choosing bad. Now I'm choosing good. No, it's I'm turning from my sin and I'm coming back to God. We were, when we repent, we experience blessed communion with our Father once again. Blessed communion with Him. Restored to fellowship and enjoyment of the relationship because our sin keeps us from enjoying God, keeps us from fellowshipping with Him. But when we repent, we're coming back to enjoy that communion once more. And we see this in Psalm 73 with Asaph. Right, who was envious of the wicked because they were prospering. They were going against God's will, and yet they were prospering. Asaph is disgruntled about this because he looks at his own life. He's trying to actually do things that are right. He's keeping his hands clean before the Lord, yet he's stricken every day, he says. My life's hard, yet I'm doing what God wants to do. They're doing what God hates, and yet they're prosperous. What gives? He feels like the Lord's holding out on him. But then he goes into the sanctuary of God, God reminds him that the wicked are actually walking toward judgment. They're walking toward destruction. And that's what leads to his repentance. And so he says in 73, verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, 
He's talking to God. He's confessing, right? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We know those verses, don't we? We're familiar with those verses, but it's so much more powerful coming at the end of Psalm 73. It's beautiful. After that descent and descent, and he's coming out, but he doesn't just come to a place where he's no longer envious or jealous. He comes to a place where he's saying, I have nothing on earth I desire besides God. In heaven, whom have I but God? And then he ends up saying at the very end of the psalm, but for me, it is good to be near God. That's what his goodness is, right? Not having a life of prosperity and riches and ease, but to be near God. That's important. Okay, I'm going to have to fly through these next portions because we also have a counseling question we have to talk about too, briefly. Signs of counterfeit repentance. Experiencing sorrow and reforming behavior because of undesirable consequences. Okay, so think of Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 27, and in verse 34. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. A few verses later in verse 34, he says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. That's counterfeit repentance. We see it there in Pharaoh himself. Also, counterfeit repentance is leaving one sin for another. Saying, okay, yeah, I'm not going to do this one anymore. That kind of got me nowhere and people didn't like that. So I'll just go over to a less consequential sin. Counterfeit repentance because we read verses like this in Romans 6.19. Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Leave that unrighteousness behind. You're no longer a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. So you can't just choose to um, exchange sins. That's not repentance. Or being impatient with those you've sinned against, expecting them to hurry up and get over it. Right? I said I was sorry. I confess to you. Why do we have to keep going through this over and over again? Just forgive me. Let's get back to normal. Counterfeit. Repentance, because love is patient and kind, 1 Corinthians 13. And because one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Love, joy, peace, patience. Or what about this? Refusing to make a plan for future faithfulness in the wake of sin and simply thinking that things will be different next time. I feel this bad. I, I know, if I feel this bad about my sin right now, Certainly, I'm never going to want to do this again. Foolishly, you don't make a plan. I like uh, there's a little quote by Tim Challies on, on dealing with temptation. He says, at your best, plan for your worst. At your best, plan for your worst. When you're thinking rightly, when you're mourning over sin, when you're grieved that God has been offended, that's when you make a plan for those times when you're actually toying with the idea again. Right? That's true repentance. This is counterfeit repentance. Because... Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Pluck out the eye that causes you to sin. Cut off the arm. Radical amputation when it comes to sin. 
Then, this is also counterfeit repentance, finding comfort in being free from the consequences of sin instead of in the promises of God in Christ. That's where we get our comfort from, is, is in God's promises. They are yes and amen for us. 2 Corinthians 1.20. 1 John 2.1 says, if, if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Those kinds of promises given to us. That's where we get our comfort from, not just simply from the circumstances being different or lessened in their seriousness and severity. Okay, now, we're going to look at counseling exam 16, number 16 there, using biblical categories. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm going so fast. I know this just feels like jarring, like, like that, but we have to get this done. Counseling exam question 16, using biblical categories, what consideration should be made Relating to Emily's safety, what practical steps can be taken to ensure Emily's safety, right? And so this, obviously, if you, if you read the case study, it's talking about Emily, whose, whose husband has been increasing in his anger, ends up throwing things in their last fight. What would we do to help protect her? And so let's hear some principles. Um, so, okay, yeah, I have that. That's a good question. Uh, do, does somebody have that, that you have some? Because I was sent it by Lacey, so I don't know where to find that. Let me let me find Lacey after this is over and get some information about that. I'm not sure where to find that online. She e- emailed it to me, so I'll make sure you guys get that. Yeah, there's a case study um, that, that helps us give some context about what we're dealing with when it comes to an angry husband and potential abuse. His anger is ramping up, and he's starting to, to get more and more volatile. Okay? First principle. God has a compassionate heart for the afflicted and the oppressed. Psalm 10, 17, and 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. For the afflicted, for the oppressed, he is compassionate toward them. Similarly, in Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God cares. Those people are hurting and oppressed by other people in their lives. We need to know that. And so that disposition, that heart disposition of God toward the weak and the needy and the oppressed uh, should draw people to him and draw um, people to his word and to his people to expect the same kind of heart as well. And there's also wisdom in avoiding unnecessary suffering. Wisdom in avoiding unnecessary suffering. This is this is good. This is a helpful verse here. Proverbs twenty two, three. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Very similar is the verse in Proverbs twenty seven verse twelve. The Prudent sees danger and hides himself again, but the simple go on and suffer for it. There's two verses there in the scriptures, and I like what Jay Adams says. 
Um, he's got these, these little commentaries on the New Testament and also Proverbs. And so pulling that out and looking over this verse, he had this to say about Proverbs 22, verse 3. He says, there's no premium on suffering in Christianity unless it's necessary suffering for the sake of Christ. Some have mistaken, some have the mistaken idea that all suffering is laudatory, right? Praiseworthy. According to this verse, that is a senseless idea, he says. There's no premium on suffering in Christianity. You know, just go looking for suffering or never hide yourself from suffering. No, that would be senseless. That would be unwise according to these two verses in Proverbs. And so we would expect that, yes, we would help Emily to hide, to be safe in those Moments when she is at danger at the anger of her husband who is continuing to increase in his volatility. And this is where we start to get really practical now. A woman in danger of abuse from her husband can appeal to God-given authorities outside her home. This is important because some women don't, don't realize this. They think, well, the scriptures say that I need to submit to my husband and therefore I don't really have another option. This is the husband I have. I've got to submit to him. Yes, it's hard and yes, he's dangerous, but I've got to submit. And they don't realize there are authorities they can appeal to. What are those authorities? Government, law enforcement. She can call the police. She can call the authorities. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He has set in place authority, the governing authorities, the police to help those who are suffering at the hands of those who are breaking the laws of the land and more importantly, breaking God's laws whenever they are harming others. So they can appeal to government and they can appeal to church leadership. This is important. The elders of the church. We have this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. This is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, right? The call to submit to the leaders of your local congregation. And so a woman in her church can reach out to her elders, and those elders are called to help her and to bring her into safety, to be there for her in that way. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And so the men that are leading the local church are called to not be domineering. These husbands that are dangerous are being domineering, but the men who are in a church are not to be domineering. They are to shepherd the flock, and that includes protecting the flock, doesn't it? Feed, lead, and protect. That's what good shepherds do. And so she can appeal to her elders for help. And so what the elders can do when she does appeal is they can help establish rules of engagement. Maybe maybe there is a way, um, if, if a husband is, is becoming angry, the elders can step in and say, okay, we're going to be very precise and give you rules of engagement. When you talk to one another and talk to the husband and say, when you are engaging with your wife, here are the things that you do and here are the things you don't do. When you get to this point, then that's wrong. That's clearly a violation. That's unwise. And we need to help you walk this fine line because you have been doing poorly and we want to help you turn from this. And so there can be a way to establish rules of engagement and also establish a point at which you would have the wife call the elders, right? And, and I, I have, um, I, when I was at Calvary Bible Church, this was something that uh, was practiced, and I, th- I think it's a very good practice for these kinds of situations where you would, might, for immediate safety purposes, give a prepaid cell phone to a woman. If you think that she's in potential danger from her husband, then yes, um, she can appeal to you as an authority in her life, and you can say, here, in case you are in danger, here is a cell phone, reach out to us. Again, because there are authorities outside of her home that she can appeal to under God and be completely pleasing to him as she does so. So a prepaid cell phone to a woman who's, so she can use that. And it's not something that can be tracked by her husband, especially when he gets very, very controlling, perhaps. You might have to designate for her an unknown safe house. A place where if it got to a certain point, then you'd pull her out of there get her to somebody's house where she's safe and there's no way for um, him to know so he can find her. An unknown safe house, perhaps somebody in the church, perhaps somebody that's in a, in a sister church that, that he doesn't know about. You have to ask these kinds of questions and go down this road with the leadership, asking uh, the hard questions, but praying and doing so with great wisdom as you help this woman pursue safety. Now, what about long-term safety? Separation may be warranted to protect her. Separation may be warranted. And during that separation, counseling for both during the separation, you will need to come alongside the woman and remind her of God's fatherly care, his gracious heart, his mercy, help um, build her up and point her to uh, who Christ is for her. A lot of... The, the kind of comforting counsel that's required for people that have been in that kind of environment, abusive and harsh. And he needs to be called to the carpet. He needs to be confronted. He needs to be um, told um, the, that the harshness and the volatility and the fear that he has been provoking is offensive to God. Help him work through that. And it it may be a slow process, but he will need to be confronted and called to repentance and then helped to be restored to a place where he can um, walk worthy of the Lord. 
The church will need to unburden the wife so as not to increase her pressure and other ways during this time as well. You can imagine if she's got children, there's going to be more responsibility now she has. She's perhaps alone during the separation with the children. What would you do as a church family? What would you do as elders, right? The elders need to come alongside her and say, okay, what can we do to put a framework in place, right? A system in place to bear you up during this time so that you don't have to deal with extra pressures while you're trying to uh, respond to all of this fear that you've been walking through and this harm that's been done to you. There's that uh, first... Thessalonians 5.14, by the way. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's I-D-L-E, right? Um, The unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. You're dealing with, no doubt, a faint-hearted woman. So you're going to have to encourage her and do so with skill during that time um, where she needs counsel and she needs you to help her with very practical and physical needs. And then there's also church discipline for the abuser from Matthew 18. It may come to that. Of course, we're talking about um, a husband that's inside the church. I know there's a lot of other questions that that go along with, what if he's not a believer? You know, what if he's not a part of the church? But for those who are, there is this plan of church discipline and the stages of walking through that, those four different stages we see in those verses, 15 through 17 and Matthew 18. Okay, um, just some resources. Um, Do you have those resources on your page there? Yeah, good, excellent. You can look at those. By the way, this committed to care, the statement on abuse, uh, um, uh, the statement on abuse from ACBC just came out maybe two months ago. And it is very well done, right? I was looking particularly at this portion of it to prepare for this lecture. And so I, um, I point you to that. I think you can find that online. I'll ask as well so that you can have that if you need it. But committed to care is a statement on abuse. It's very detailed. It's got affirmations and denials and also kind of um, um, a framework to think through whenever you're dealing with people who are suffering in these ways. Okay. Well, that's it. We're out of time. Um, I would ask for questions, but just come see me afterward. (laughs) If you have any questions, we'll talk then. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this time for us to consider these things. There's some hard issues for us to deal with, but we believe your word has answers. And we've seen again the sufficiency of your word to answer hard questions. And so, Father, may we walk according to your word, by your spirit, and Lord, according to the things that you've revealed. And Lord, knowing that your grace is sufficient always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.